Um, today we're going to be looking at Genesis 49, 26 through chapter 50, verse 14. Before we launch off into that, and for those that, I'm going to do it now or I'll forget at the end. Uh, for those that are coming in uh, later, you might let them know, August 20th. I've pretty much firmed up the date to start the book of Esther. So we will wrap Genesis up today and the next two Sundays. Today we're going to go through the book of the text. Uh, there will be about half of Genesis 50 left to do next week. Uh, there are some big picture things that I never know when to bring them in. Uh, we could talk about Joseph and his comparison to Christ anywhere along the way. And uh, Joseph as a type, if you will. And um, if my time works like I've got it planned, next week we're going to do just that. We'll, we'll talk about Joseph and a comparison of him to Christ after we finish up chapter 50. And so that's next week, and then the following week will be our last discussion of Genesis, and I want to go back and hit some highlights. I mean, we if you think about Genesis, we've covered from creation through the flood, through the reestablishment of mankind on the planet, through some covenants with all of nature, the rainbow, and now through Abraham and through the establishment of the nation that's going to be occurring over the next around 300 years uh, in Egypt. And so um, there, there's, a, there's some highlights to go back and just bring up and say, before we get done, don't forget uh, what's going on and what's happened and all of those things. So that's the plan. Next week, <coughs> we will finish chapter 50 and take a bit of a look at Joseph as compared to Christ. And then the following week, two weeks from today, we'll just go back and review some high points from our time together in Genesis. And then the following week, the 20th of August, we will start into Esther. So with that, let's, let's jump into Genesis chapter 49. Where did we leave off? We ended last week uh, discussing Jacob's words about Joseph. And we're going to continue looking at his words about Joseph just a little bit here today. And we'll pick it up in verse 26. Last week prior to Joseph, we discussed Zebulun, who would be connected with the trade of the Mediterranean Sea. They would be settling on the Via Maris trade route. Uh, we looked at Jacob's word about Issachar, uh, called him a strong donkey. They were going to be in a role of being protectors at times. And they settled in a pleasant land and devoted themselves to work at that land, somewhat as a slave to that land. We looked at the tribe of Dan. Out of Dan comes Samson as a judge. Uh, the tribe of Dan was not particularly known for moral or godly behavior, uh, leadership. One of the golden calves was placed there and when the kingdom split and idolatry came to the northern kingdom and came to Dan in particular. Dan has a very unique, dubious honor. Honor is the wrong word. 
uh, notoriety for being the one tribe that uh, does not get mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 when we're mentioning the 12 tribes and the 12,000 from each one of those tribes. We talked about Gad, that they would then settle east of the Jordan and as such be subject to a lot of attack, but they became good warriors and were very successful in fending off the people that would give them trouble. Asher was mentioned, and they're going to be in a rich coastal region of the northwest of is in part of Israel, and they're going to be known for very good crops, very delicate foods, and rich foods. Naphtali is described as a doe set loose. They will have great speed and agility as warriors. Deborah and Borak came from this tribe, who would be judges later in the life of the land of Israel. And then we started in on Joseph, and so far we had mentioned that he's described as a fruitful bough. Um, branch, extremely healthy and productive, and yet attacked by archers. He would experience conflict in the midst of prosperity, but he would stood the conflict well. And in J verses 24 and 25, we see Jacob talk of God's strength and blessing, and in that he uses multiple names of God, showing the fullness of God's presence and blessing in Joseph's, Joseph's life. And uh, he cites that great blessing and describes it in various ways. And so with that, let's pick it up in verse 26, kind of quit in the middle of some things there. And I probably made a few comments about this last week, but not enough. So let's look at Genesis 49:26. I'll read that for us. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. And that's an interesting verse to read because Jacob has been spending his time talking about his sons for the most part throughout this time of uh, both prophetic as well as uh, fatherly blessing discussion. And so he starts out there in verse 26, the blessings of your father have suppressed the blessings of my ancestors. Who is he speaking to? What's that? Joseph. Yeah, not a hard question, I hope. Although I had to think about a time or two before I got this verse straight. And so when he's speaking to Joseph and he says, the blessings of your father, who's Joseph's father? Jacob. He keeps the focus on Joseph, but yet he starts talking about his own blessings. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Jacob is saying there and says, I am more blessed than Abraham and Isaac. And... He goes on to say, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. It's deep and rich. It's just, it's just everywhere. Uh, and so he sees that great blessing. Now, we wouldn't have to look back very far to find a different Jacob, would we? When they were going through the trips to Egypt, did Jacob sound like a happy man? You want to take Benjamin? You're going to send me to the depths of Sheol and grief. I mean, he was grieving Joseph for years. He, was, he, he, he did not 
sense God's great blessing upon him in those moments as far as what's expressed in the interaction with his sons. He's, he's, he's very disappointed with life. And so you want to take my youngest, my dear, loved Benjamin away from me and run the risk that I'm going to lose both of the children that I had with Rachel? That's what you want to do? But now, he says, in the presence of Joseph, they've been reunited and they're being taken care of. And God told him, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. It's in Egypt that I'm going to make your people into a great nation. And so he says, blessings are just everywhere. And isn't that how it is for us in life sometimes too? Dark days. Things just aren't the way they ought to be. This is not what I expected. This is so different. I never thought I would be at this place in life. And yet here I am and this isn't good. It's terrible. And yet out of those times we often find great blessing. And God continues to lead us into paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now we can get all worked up in a good way about how God blesses us and what it's like to live a life of faith. And then we go read Hebrews 11 and we see not only did God bless those men of faith partially because or mainly because they weren't looking for something earthly. They were looking for a house not made with hands. That's a metaphor to talk about. They were looking toward heaven, not toward some great kingdom thing on earth. But as we keep reading and we read about the great blessings that they received but yet didn't receive because they were far off, we also can keep reading and <laughs> the chapters of faith and showing the great blessings of their faith includes men who were sawn in two, women who did not get their dead back. I mean, there are times of life and periods of life and periods of history where it's pretty dark and stays pretty dark for a long time. But if our focus is not on this world and this life, we can still find joy. It's very ancient and overly used as an example by me, but just read the hiding place. Dark times come. We live through dark times. We live through the results of man's sinfulness, death and destruction from time here and there. Joseph, Jacob has lived through a lot. And he's fortunate not all men get to see in this life the kinds of blessings that he sees, but he gets to see it. Joseph restored. The words of God about we're still building the nation. It's going to get built in Egypt. Now, of course, if you go ahead and read the book of Exodus, that might not be as positive as we might have thought it would be from the way that he might have taken it. But he says, I've surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the highest hills. And then he says, likewise, he doesn't use the word likewise, but may they be on the head of Joseph. He wants Joseph to be blessed as well. And on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Can you not see right behind that, thinking about the dreams Joseph had? Joseph's dreams were accurate. He may not have been particularly wise about how he told his brothers and his father about the dreams. 
He may not have been real wise in his interaction with his siblings, but the dreams were true. They were from God, and they indeed were fulfilled in a way that distinguished him among his brothers. Among his brothers, they would have to say, Joseph's the man. He's in charge. He was blessed by God. God blessed him to actually be to the point of the being the highest in the land of Egypt with the exception of Pharaoh. And so the dreams are fulfilled. Questions, comments about Joseph? Well, there's not a lot of words here, but we're going to spend some time, we'll spend some time in verse 27. Because now we talk about Benjamin. Think about the words of Jacob before I read verse 27. Think about the words of Jacob back when they wanted to take Benjamin with them because that's what they didn't know was Joseph, but that's what the man in Egypt, Joseph, had demanded. If you come back, I'm not doing business with you unless Benjamin's with you. How did Jacob talk about Benjamin? What do you remember? Yeah, my beloved son. My heart's tied up with Benjamin. Other comments? Pretty well gets it. Now let's listen to these words. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the spoil. Does that sound about the same? Jacob's a little more, I'm not sure which word to use, insightful, realistic, um, maybe entirely prophetic. Maybe he hasn't seen a lot of this in Benjamin, but he describes Benjamin as a kind of vicious kind of a person. I have never seen a wolf in the wild. And... I've read some books, mostly as a youngster, one about a wolf that was made into a pet. I'm sure it was all fiction. I don't know much about wolves, except I do know that in parts of the country they had bounties on the heads of wolves because they would go out and massacre cows. Uh, and the, I, I knew of guys that had a great time destroying airplanes that wasn't their goal but they wound up in Alaska shooting wolves from aircraft at the government's request and uh, they got more involved in shooting wolves than they did in flying their airplanes one guy I know in particular they finally said if you're going to keep doing this you can't fly anymore that was the FAA talking to him and so he quit flying for shooting wolves in Alaska but they apparently are pretty dangerous vicious creatures and he says you're a ravenous wolf in the morning you devour your prey meaning he's going to go out and kill prey and eat it and then in the evening divides the spoil so you know it's it's just a kill and eat kill and drag it home kill and eat kind of a of a life 
And this probably is a good picture of Benjamin as a tribe. I really don't want to tell you about the events that made the tribe of Benjamin famous or infamous, or I'm not sure what word to use, in the land of Israel. But I think it's necessary when you read this to connect it with what was to come. They became a warring tribe. They were very much involved in military activities, whether you want to talk about defense or if you want to talk about holding land or taking land or many other things. And we're not going to go read this. I'm going to describe it. Part of the reason I want to describe it is there are things in this passage that are really hard to listen to. But in Judges 19 and 20, we get a picture of the tribe of Benjamin and the results of what they did. And there's sin across the board in this story. There was a Levite who took a concubine. Levites were not forbidden to marry, but when you see concubine, typically this is a, a person taken as a slave in that kind of a relationship. Now this concubine that he took played the harlot. So she took off and was adventurous, if that's the right word, I don't know what word to use, sinful, um, and was very unfaithful to him. He goes to bring her back. He finds her at her father's home, and the scriptures even talk about doing that with gentleness and kind words. On the trip home, he stays with the father-in-law. His father-in-law keeps trying to get him to stay longer and longer and longer. I say father-in-law, but her dad. And on the way back, when he does leave after a few days with his concubine, they come to a foreign city that's near Jerusalem. Remember, um, Jerusalem was not always part of the Jewish nation. It wouldn't even become really part of it until David captures it during his reign and makes it the, the capital city. They went to a, 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 the next city that wasn't far away called Gibeah. And this happens to actually be in the land in the territory of Ephraim. But it's Benjamite, Benjamin, Benjaminite controlled. And so they go there to spend the night because he was unwilling to spend a night in some city that was not controlled by kinsmen another tribe, or a tribe. And they didn't find a place to take in. They did not get the hospitality that was expected of the day. Of the day, you're one of my brothers traveling, or frankly, even a foreigner, you were expected to show hospitality and give them a place to stay, but they went to the town square. I don't know what that was. When I read that, my image is of the small towns around here that have a town square where it's kind of the central place with maybe the courthouse, probably a park and whatever. But it's kind of a public area, <clears throat> but it's not a very safe place in some situations. Well, as they're there, there's an old man who's been traveling around who has a home nearby uh, in the hills of Ephraim. And it's, we know it's pretty close because of what happens, but he says, oh, no, come with me. 
I will take you in, we'll give you, we've got food for your animals, we'll take care of you, and all these things. And then it becomes something that I would say is even because of a lack of the presence of angels uh, that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm not saying God didn't do something he should have done here, I'm just saying it's a different environment, but we see something similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the men of the city, Gibeah, Benjaminites, come to the home and they demand that the Levite be given to them for relations. The scriptures don't say it terribly, but I'm even being a little kinder than the way the scriptures talk about it. Well, <clears throat> there is this interaction. The old man says, these are guests of my home. Go away. They won't go away. They won't listen. And before the whole thing is done, the concubine is given to these men. And as a result, she died during the night of this debauchery. The next morning, the Levite and the old man find her dead on this doorstep. Terrible story, isn't it? It gets worse before we're done. The Levite is apparently very upset. Without a lot of emotional words, uh, the scriptures describe that he took her home he cut her body up and sent pieces to each of the 12 tribes as a accusation, if you will. This is what happened. It shouldn't have happened. This is wrong. So the rest of well, all of Israel is confronted with then this great sin these Benjaminites have done. I mean, it's horrific. Uh, and the rest of the tribes demand of the tribe of Benjamin that they, from this city, produce the man, the men that did this. They need to be punished. To the credit of the, of the other tribes, they recognize this cannot go unaddressed. The Benjaminite tribe says, no, we're going to protect them. And not talked about a lot in, in the stories of the Bible, the true accounts of the Bible. But when we talk about things publicly, it's easy to understand why this story is hard to talk about. This leads to a civil war. Before it's done, the rest of the tribes attack Benjamin and nearly wipe them out. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin realizes they've lost the war, and I don't ex remember exactly how it all comes together, but they retreat, surrender, so to speak. But there are many Benjaminites that lost their lives defending these sinful men and trying to keep them from the rest of the tribes. And when I read this, I don't know how much Jacob might have known. I don't know what God revealed to Jacob as he's giving these prophetic-like discussions about his boys and who they are and what they're going to be like, but Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the, store, the spoil. That could mean a lot of things, and it certainly could have included some of his looking ahead to this. 
because it is so horrific to me as I read it, I sometimes wonder why there aren't two tribes missing when we read about the 12 tribes in the book of Revelation. But not only do they survive this, there are, and, and are, are included in the 12 tribes, there are two fairly famous folk that were out of the tribe of Benjamin. One was the first Israelite king named Saul. And as a matter of fact, his capital city was Gibeah, the same city where this event took place. And he was a very shy man. Doesn't sound much like a Benjaminite when you compare what happened here with him hiding in a barrel to avoid being brought before the people as the king. But indeed, he was made king, and he did well for a while uh, until he got a little too big for his britches, so to speak, and God appointed David as the one to take over the throne. The other very famous one also had the name of Saul, also carried the name of Paul. You remember Paul's own words about himself? A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't hide from it. And to some extent, before his conversion, these words fit him a little bit. He was going around intending to incarcerate or put to death the ones that had become believers in Jesus Christ. And of course, we all know the story well of how that came out. So that is the tribe of Benjamin. How would you like to be from the tribe of Benjamin? Particularly as we talk today about this event. Wouldn't be very much fun, would it? Well, we'll get back to that a little more before we're done today unless I mismanage the time. Questions, comments? All right, so now let's look at verses 28 through 33. I'd really like a volunteer to read through the end of the chapter there. Someone willing to pick that up for us? Go ahead, Alan. All these are 12... All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre and the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess a, as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. A lot of this I don't need to make a lot of comment about because it tells the story well. But we do need to make a little bit of comment for sure about verse 28. Jacob blessed his sons, the 12 tribes. Each blessing was appropriate for them. Now who's writing this? 
Moses. This isn't just for our information. This isn't just history, though it is. This is a recording of what Jacob said. It's written down. But imagine hearing this as the tribes. As, Jake, as uh, Moses was in the process of putting this down. Somewhere along in the Exodus, these words get written. And so they are getting a picture of their own heritage. Because everyone on that trip is in one of these tribes. Much of what we talked about that they would do, they have not yet done. Almost all of what we talked about, they have not yet done. But Moses is making it clear, these words tell you about who you are. And are words that should help them think about who they are in the eyes of God. And so here Moses has put it down for them. And then we see Jacob continuing, I'm going to die. He knows he's on his deathbed, and he restates his request. Don't bury me here. Take me home. Take me to the field that Abraham bought, the cave where other ancestors are buried, where even Leah, my wife, was buried. And he makes that request again, and then it says he drew his feet into the bed. There's probably some significance to that statement in their culture, but I don't know what it is. I didn't find it in my looking, but he died. He was gathered to his people. You know, it's interesting, those words gathered to his people, because how do we look at it from a human perspective? I went to a funeral yesterday, and it isn't that they're gathered to their people, it's now they are departed from their people. Our perspective is so much about this life, but in this case, he was gathered to his people, his ancestors, that had gone before him. And all uh, that that means with regard to being um, in the presence of God and, and all of those things about the transition from this physical life into the eternal life. So Jacob blessed his sons. He died. And now let's take a look at verses, chapter 50, the first 14 verses. And I would welcome again. Somebody could read those for us. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him, commanded his servants, physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, so that his tummy were required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days. And when the days of the weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have now found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of... Uh, sorry, I am about... Wait... Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb, uh, in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. 
and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was very, it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. Mizraim. Uh, it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the field Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which is Abraham, which Abraham bought with the, the field from Ephraim to Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and also had gone up with him to bury his father. And, and once again, in one sense, you know, it tells the story well. I wouldn't have to say a lot, but there are a few things to say and to note. Joseph obviously was very moved. It's a pretty vivid picture, falling on his father, weeping, kissing, this was a momentous moment for Joseph. And in verse 2 then, he commands the servants of the physicians to embalm his father's body. There is a significant thing right here that I did not realize. But the ones that did the most of the embalming were not the physician's servants. Most Egyptian embalming was done by... Well, you could call them magicians, you could call them their false religious priests, you could call them whatever. But he doesn't go to these mystical people. He goes to the physician's people and says, would you embalm my father? And so indeed they do that and the process takes some time. It takes about 40 days to get that process done. And then along with that, the Egyptians wept with Joseph for 70 days it was apparently their normal grieving process over one who died in Egypt so there's a lot of a lot of lamenting and grieving going on during this time but when the time of, for grieving is over Joseph asks Pharaoh if he can go bury his father reminding him of the promise or telling him of the promise he made to Jacob and ask for permission to go and then return and Pharaoh says, go and do what you promised. And so Joseph went to bury Jacob. Now, this is a big procession. You have servants of Pharaoh went along, honoring to Joseph, all of Joseph's household, his brothers, and his father's entire household of people. The only ones left are the children and, of course, their flocks and uh, their possessions were left in Goshen. And not only did these people go, but they send chariots and horsemen. So if you didn't know better, if you were a Canaanite, you might think you were being invaded. This is a pretty big thing going on. And then they came to the threshing floor of Atad beyond the Jordan. Well, I got to that and it didn't make sense to me. If you look at a map, why would you go across the Jordan to get to the area of Mamre where they were going to bury it? Jordan's not on their path. Um, I'm going to go to the conclusion. I'm going to back up and tell you a few things. I don't have any idea where this was. I tried looking at various people who should maybe be able to explain that. 
And it's amazing when you come up with a line like that in the scriptures that you go, I can't figure out what's going on. Being men, we think we can figure out anything. And I don't necessarily mean just males, but maybe that would be fair. I don't know. But these guys have to figure this out. So they've got all kinds of strange, to me, strange solutions. One is, well, there really was a, tor a town named Jordan down on the path. And that's the town they're talking about. One guy goes to great lengths explaining all this, and then other people go to great lengths explaining why he's not very bright. And another one was that, well, maybe they went up on the other side of the Jordan and went around. Now, that kind of, you, they could have done that, but we don't really know why. Another one wants to move the burying place to be east of the Jordan. Now, how much evidence do we have in the book of Genesis about the burying place being up there by the Oaks of Mamre, and so on and so on. I mean, there's just no real question about that. So people went to great lengths to explain it, and maybe there is a good explanation, and I didn't find it, but I'm just going to say, I don't know. I don't know where this threshing floor was. But when they got there, they had great mourning again. The Egyptians, along with Joseph, are there. They mourn to the point that in verse 11... The inhabitants. Who's the inhabitants of the land that they're in? Canaanites. Canaanites make the name of the town Abel Mizraim. I don't know if I said that right. But it means Egyptians mourning. I mean, the town's name changed or the area's name changed just because uh, the th name of this threshing floor became that just because of the great mourning that they witnessed there. And the sons of Joseph then, in verse 12, did as Jacob had requested. They buried him in Canaan, in the field in, uh, uh, of Machpelah, near Mamre, one purchased by Abraham from the Hittite, and so on. And in verse 14, Joseph returned to Egypt along with the rest of them. Um, so the 12 tribes... As we saw in verse, chap, uh, verse 40, chapter 49, verse 28, I'm going back to that. I want to go back to that, and this is what I want to close up with. Um, they received a blessing appropriate to them. And let's remember who these 12 tribes are and the way that their future coming has been talked about to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Let's look at first Genesis 12, 2 and 3. In Genesis chapter 12, God is calling Abraham out of his homeland uh, to the east, out of an area that was very much involved with idolatry, and this is the first time, I believe, that he makes in a promise to Abraham about what he's going to do. And let's read that. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay. So here's the initial promise blessing to Abraham of what God is going to do 
with his lineage. Going to make you a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Uh, we're not going to turn to it, but when Abraham offers Isaac and God stops the sacrifice of Isaac, we get even more words about God's promise and blessing to Abraham and that through Isaac this will come. Let's look at Genesis 26, 23, and 24. Genesis 26, 23, and 24. In looking for the repeating of this promise to the various generations, this is God's words to Isaac. And they're not as prolific of, of words as we see for Abraham, but this is where we see it passed on to Isaac. After he's moved around, dug wells, keeps getting chased off, he finally finds a place and says, God's provided a place for us. And then this is what God says, Genesis 26, 23, and 24. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Yep, so that's where he ties in the promises to Abraham, and this is what's going to happen. And then a couple of times it gets said to Jacob, but let's look at what was said around his dream. Genesis 28, 10 through 17. Genesis 28, 10 through 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall be spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob had quite an experience here, didn't he? Um, interaction with God, talking about the same kinds of promises that he had given to Abraham and transferred through to Isaac and now to him about building a nation. Oh, and by the way, you're going to possess this land and so on and so on and so on. And Jacob is impressed and calls this place the gateway to heaven. So in chapter 49, we read Jacob's prophetic and blessing type statements over his children. And we looked at what was going to come in just little snippets for these tribes as they progressed their way through becoming a nation and their activities in Israel. Can you imagine from God's perspective, this is your starting point, were these folks worthy? Did God pick these men, these tribes, to be the progenitors of Israel because they were worthy? 
Not much worthiness there, is there? Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 6. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go to to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, uh, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not stay in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. Do not say in your heart, in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them but before, out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm that the world, the world that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, but for for you are a stubborn people. So here they are getting ready to go take some land. How are they going to do it? What's going to be the might that lets them accomplish this? God himself. And they're going to drive out a people that if you looked at it in human terms, according to this passage, you would say, they're giants. We can't, we can't do anything against these people. They're mighty. They would defeat us in humans' terms. And Moses says, you're going to go be successful. You're going to be successful because of what God did. And he warns them what to not think as a result. And what does he tell them? It's not because of you. It's not your righteousness. He could have also said, and it's not your power. Because you're a stubborn people. You, you, you're, you're, you're just the opposite of the kind of people that are getting this because of your virtue. Because of who you are. But he does tell them that we're driving these people out. God has told you to do it because of their sinfulness. And so when the Israelites go take their country... The Canaanite, the land of Canaan that God promised them, was God there letting them do that because they had somehow 
been the apple of his eye and he was just so thrilled with them? No. For the most part, they were playing the same role that Nebuchadnezzar played. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant, and how did he serve God? Do you remember? Do you know? What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He conquered Israel and took them off captive and drug them off uh, and made them slaves and expected them to worship him as God for a while. God kind of took care of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. But, not kind of, God greatly took care of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and brought him under subjection to himself. But they're not there because they earned it. Was it promised to Abraham? Yes. Did God fulfill his promises? Yes. Let's go over to Numbers 14, read verses 1 through 11. We're actually backing up in time just a little bit from the passage we just read. But Numbers 14, 1 through 11. If we want to really get God's perspective on these people, this is a good place to go. Then the whole congregation lifted up their voices and cried out, and that night the people wept. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down before the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the whole congregation of Israel, The land we passed through and explored is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, for they will be like bread for us. The protection has been re- their protection has been removed, and the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole congregation threatened to stone Joshua and Caleb. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites in the tent of meeting. At, and the Lord <coughs> said to Moses, How long will this people treat you with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me despite all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them, and I will make them into the nation greater and mightier than they are. Yeah, and we're going to stop there for the sake of time, but there's an interchange that continues between Moses and God where Moses is pleading, don't destroy these people. And Moses has reasons why. But So um, what did God think of these people? as a result during and the exodus and so on. Twice. This is the second time he says, I'm done with them. That's what I'm going to do. This time he says to Moses, and I'll make you a great nation. And Moses says, no, you can't do that. Please don't do that. It's your reputation. What will people say that the ones you brought out of Egypt with all these miracles so that you bring them out here and then wipe them out. And of course, these people, look at their response when 
the two real leaders that were two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, show leadership. No, my friends, wrong answer. We can trust God. See how they responded? Yeah, let's stone these guys. And so this is what we see. These are a people that if you look at their history, are people of rebellion and sin and idolatry, and they continuously don't trust God. Go read the book of Hebrews. They constantly are lacking in their faith in God and their willingness to follow and trust him and are rebellious because of it. And yet, God takes these people and does make them a great nation physically here on earth. And God does take these people and through them fulfills his promises to Abraham. And he does, through these very people, choose to become incarnate here on this earth as Jesus the Christ so that all men might be blessed and saved. What's really interesting is these same people, when Jesus is walking around on the earth, are puffed up and full of pride, even though they're a conquered nation at the time. How do we know that? Jesus says, if you follow me, you will be set free from your slavery. And they say, we're not slaves, we're... Know what they said? We're children of Abraham. Now, what in the world, if you look at the fullness of their history, what does that do for them? Yes, they're children of the promise, but the promise is fulfilled not in a manner that glorifies any man, but glorifies God himself. When we look at this book of Genesis, and we're going to, in a couple of weeks, as I told you, go back and hit some high spots. This is not a book of how God took mankind and shaped them and nurtured them and brought them in to become great people. This is how God took mankind and through his own grace and his own power begins the process from the very first sin of redeeming mankind through rebellious, sinful, worthless, if you, in God's eyes, people that don't measure up. That's who they are. That's who their ancestors were. And while we may not be out of the lineage of Abraham, maybe there's someone in here with some Jewish blood, I don't know. But that's who we are anyway. Matter of fact, we're people, we're descendants of people God invested less in throughout history. And I'm going to tell you that apart from the grace of God, there isn't a person in here that has any right to think they're any better than anyone out of the tribe of Benjamin that sinned in those days. If you've sinned at all, you're guilty of all. And our tendency towards sin, the flesh wants to take us where these men went. And it's difficult, it's challenging, it's only by the grace of God that that's not where we go. So when we look at these people, it's easy for us to say, 
Man, what a bunch of losers that God started with. Yeah, and that's who he's continuing with. And I just want to make that point very clearly today that the land of Israel would have some great moments. They would have some moments where they turn back to God. The rebuilding of the temple time, you read in the book of Ezra and Joshua, I'm not Joshua, Ezra and Nehemiah, they had some bright moments. And occasionally they would rally one another and a group of them would do some good things. But in the main, those are short, bright moments. And as we watch nations come and go, nations have for throughout history done the same thing and are continuing to do so today. That does not change one bit the sovereignty of God in the history of man. God doesn't need any nation. He doesn't need any particular person. And yet he will use nations and he will call people to glorify him. And if you're in that group, just be thankful that you're being called to glorify God. In whatever way it turns out is our opportunity to do so. Questions, comments? All right, let me close with prayer. Not always easy to look at ourselves and see who we really are apart from you. Lord, we thank you for the pictures that you've given us, the accurate history you've given us of the people that we see come out of the book of Genesis that you will build into a great nation. Lord, we see them model the way we often behave, or at least would like to behave, apart from your grace, rebellion, sinfulness, selfishness, murderous at times. Lord, we're not proud of it. We're not thankful for that, but we are so thankful that out of your grace, you've called us out of the darkness into the light, that you've chosen to make us who have responded to Jesus Christ born again. And as Paul said it, we still live in this body of flesh. Who will rescue us from this body of death? Where we sin. But Lord, it's not the pattern of our life. It's not the goal of our life. And Lord, we know one day you will finish your process of sanctifying us and making us whole that last day when death is swallowed up by victory completely where there's no more death, no more sin, no more crying, no more tears. And Lord, thank you for taking we weak human people, your creation that so often has defied you and making us into your own kingdom to glorify you throughout all of eternity. What a privilege, what a change from who we would be on our own. Thank you for being our Lord and our Savior. Lead us to respond to you as Lord at every turn. Put your truth and words in our heart that we might not, as we would so like to do, sin against you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.